I want to talk to you tonight about um, guys who has grown up in any kind of liturgical church. Okay, do you guys know what this is? It's the Advent wreath. Joe, what does that stand for? Do you know? Little quiz. That's right. That's right. Advent comes from the um, Latin word adventus, meaning arrival or coming. That's where we get the um, the um, Seventh Day Adventist. Um, denomination is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. So Advent celebrates both the um, coming of Jesus at Christmas time and looking forward to the second coming of Christ um, at the end, during the end times. The first candle, and we're going to light it tonight actually, there's four candles for every, um, for four Sundays in December, and then this is for Christmas Eve, I believe. I think I'm getting it right. Here's the thing, you guys. Um, we don't often practice or follow the church calendar here at Supper Club because we're not what you call a high church. We don't do a lot of liturgy and stuff. But that doesn't mean that tradition's not important and that tradition doesn't help us, right? One of the reasons I love celebrating Thanksgiving is it makes our whole nation stop and pause and give thanks. It's an American holiday. It's not a church holiday. It's not a worldwide holiday. It's an American holiday. We all celebrate it. And for one time in the year, hopefully people can get together and at least think about what they're thankful for. That's a really good tradition. And so we get to celebrate the church traditions we want to ch celebrate because they help us remember things, right? And what's really cool is the, ca the uh, candle that we're going to light tonight is actually the candle of prophecy. Isn't that cool? There's two candles in the Old Testament, I believe, and two candles for the New Testament. And the first one is the candle of prophecy, which really fits in nicely. Thank you, Lord for my um, sermon, which is called The Prince of Peace. And it comes from the verse in Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. This is one of my favorite verses. It's a Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that just fits in perfectly with our first candle that we're going to light tonight. This is our candle of prophecy. And hopefully we'll light one every single Saturday that we're here, and Bob will do the last one for us because it'll be the last one for our Advent. So that's our candle of prophecy. Isn't that cool? <clears throat> I, the thing I want to focus on on that scripture, um, we, Isaiah is prophesying. He's prophesying to the nation of Israel. This is during a time when Israel is being um, bombarded by all the nations around them. We still have two kingdoms. We have Israel and Judah. And Israel is trying to get Judah to make a treaty with um, Syria to go against us, Syria, and all these different nations in the Old Testament. And Judah, which is the southern kingdom, is very oppressed and feeling very depressed, like it has no hope. They don't know who to look for. They don't know who to make peace treaties with. They're about to get taken over by the Babylonians. It's a real mess during that time. And so Isaiah looks to Judah, and he says, listen, there's going to be someone who's going to come, who's going to come, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The thing that I like about this is that the outcome of all of Jesus' reign, the Wonderful Counselor, all that kind of stuff is he is going to rule and peace is going to be everywhere. Peace is going to be 
the hallmark of his reign and rule. Peace, not just governmental peace between governments, but peace for every person. And in the Old Testament, in the New, the word peace is, as you imagine, shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean, hey, absence of conflict. It means peace in your whole body. It means wholeness, fulfillment, being complete. It means the realm where chaos is not allowed to enter. I love that definition. Peace is one of the number one themes in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see it over and over and over. A foreshadowing of Christ is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem is peace. Isn't that cool? Solomon's name means peaceful one. Um, when Aaron goes to bless people, the blessing is, the Lord look upon you kindly and give you peace. When Jesus was born, the angels declared, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace is over and over and over. But the one thing peace is not is the absence of conflict, which seems kind of counterintuitive, right? It's not... Um, not confronting people. It doesn't mean not suffering. Uh, that's kind of weird, isn't it? We kind of think of peace as meaning everything is cool, we don't have any emotional turmoil in our life, and we're just kind of humming along. That's kind of the American version of peace. That's not the biblical version of peace. The biblical version of peace is a supernatural definition that comes from an inner peace, not... Um, dictated by our outside circumstances. In fact, suffering is part of the Christian walk. What did the scriptures say? Christ was perfected in his suffering, meaning completed. He was already perfect. He was completed in his suffering. Believe it or not, peace may involve suffering. Sometimes it may or may not. But peace is not determined by the absence of suffering. That has nothing to do, really, with peace, the biblical peace, how we suffer and how we handle our suffering can lead to peace, can be a part of our peace. Do you follow me? Does that make sense? It's not intuitive, but it's biblical. Biblical peace is not a one-time thing. It's a way of life. It's something we do every single day. It's something that we choose every single day. Jesus constantly displayed a lifestyle of peace when he was in troubling circumstances. He was without food for 40 days in the desert. Who here can go 40 days without food? I really can't go one day without food very easily. Yeah, four hours. Can't go four hours. Could you imagine going 40 days without food? 40 days without food, not losing your noodle? That was Jesus. In the middle of the storm in Galilee, it's raging all around and he falls asleep in the bottom of the boat. I sometimes can't be with Chris when he drives because I, there's no way I can fall asleep because I have to watch the road. Could you imagine Jesus falls asleep in the boat? Is that true, honey? Is that a little bit true? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> Peace is not the absence of grief. Peace is not the absence of grief. 
We know that when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. And yet he knew what the outcome was, but he still wept. So peace is not the absence of grief, even. Peace is something deeper. When he was, when he was confronted with a um, demoniac, remember the demoniac came to him and had a legion of demons inside of him? Guess how much a legion represents? Because that was referencing a legion of um, soldiers, like Roman soldiers. Guess what the amount of a legion would represent? Three to six thousand. Now, if you were confronted with a person that had three to six thousand demons inside of them, would that not freak you out? I mean, that's, you can't even imagine 3,000 demons, right? He was confronted with a man with 3,000 demons, and yet he was at peace. He knew who he was. He knew who ruled the earth. He knew his authority. He was at peace. In the garden, you guys, he had grief in the garden. He was called to do something he didn't want to do. It was hard for him. It was painful. It was suffering. And yet, when he had conformed himself to the will of the Father and the, and the guards came for him, he stood up and said, take me, here I am. Take me. Peter tried to cut off the guard's ear, and even in the middle of that, he performed a miracle, and he healed that man's ear. He had peace even in the middle of struggling with what God had called him to do. What did you say? Okay, I don't know what you're saying. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> Before Pontius Pilate, he had peace. He stood there like a lamb, silent, as all these accusations came at him. He didn't say a word. In fact, Pontius Pilate had to say, do you have anything to say for yourself? Are you going to defend yourself? He's like, oh, this isn't your authority. I know what's going on here. He had peace. Was he suffering? I'm sure he was. He had just gotten beat up and had a crown of thorn on him and everything. I'm sure he was not having the time of his life, but he was at peace. When he was on the cross, and they're gambling for his clothes. Now listen, I don't mean to be graphic, but I want you to understand something. He was naked on the cross. He didn't have a little loincloth like they paint in the movies or on the whatever. He was absolutely naked on the cross, exposed for the whole world to see as they're jeering him, making fun. If you're really the son of God, come down from the cross. They're making fun of him. They're tearing his, or, you know, uh, gambling for his robe. And what does he say? Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's peace, you guys. That's a peace that you can have when circumstances are not going your way. And yet somehow God's in the middle of those circumstances and you conform your will to what he's doing. You say, I'm going to partner with you, Lord, in what you're doing. I don't understand what's going on right now, but I choose you. I choose to partner with you. And that's peace. That brings you peace. There's two different kinds of peace that we can experience as Christians. One is called peace with God. And one is called the peace of God. They're both supernatural. The birth and death of Jesus made available to us peace with God. We're no longer enemies of the Lord. We're no longer enemies of God. We have peace with God. We get to actually approach the throne 
boldly because we are now children. We're his children, and we get to go complain and laugh and have a relationship with him because of Jesus. That's called the peace, peace with God. We have peace with God. But the reality is many Christians stop at that experience. And it's, they, they think that's the end experience, but that's just the threshold. That's the beginning. That's the door that you open up and you walk through to your next adventure. Think of, I think about um, Narnia and the wardrobe and the door, and she walked through to a brand new world because she walked through that wardrobe. That's what the peace, peace with God leads us to the peace of God, which is two separate things. Peace with God is the door. And now we walk into a new vista. We walk into a new reality. We walk into a new future because of we, now we have peace with God. The problem is a lot of people don't open that door. They kind of stand in the door frame and think that's it, right? How many of us know people that are Christians who are defeated, negative, critical, poverty mentality? They're just waiting it out. They're just waiting for Jesus to come back because nothing good is here on earth. It's got to all be in heaven. Does anyone know people like that? I got, you know, here's the thing, you guys. I do not want to live like that. I do not want to live like that. That, to me, is a defeated lifestyle. We are not living the promise that Jesus died for. It's important that we don't stand on the threshold. We walk through it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want to talk about a deception that the enemy does with us sometimes. How many of you have ever been deceived when the enemy says something to you and it's 1% true and 99% a lie, but you, but you are like, well, maybe if it's 1% true, the rest of it's true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you ever get where you feel condemnation or shame or something from the enemy because of 1% of what he's saying to you is true, but all the rest is false, and so you doubt yourself and you feel condemned? Has anyone ever felt that? Do you know what I'm talking about today? Yeah, okay. But do you know what I'm talking about? Does that make sense to you? To me, that's the worst tactic the enemy has because you focus on the 1% that he's saying that's true. Well, I was you know, really X, Y, Z. So maybe, therefore, all the rest is true. It's a really bad tactic that we have to take down every single time. And what I'm talking about is this. There are people, there are Christians out there that believe once they have peace with God, they have to hold on to it and keep earning it. They have to hold on to it and keep earning it, meaning... I can do this, and I can't do that. And I do this, and I don't do that. And I point out sin whenever I see it. It's a very legalistic way of living. And they're trying to keep their salvation. I want you to know something. Salvation is one and done. It's one and done. You don't have to keep earning it. You don't have to be good enough. It's a one and done event. But here's the 1% truth. Okay, Here's the 1% which hooks people up. If we're going to have the peace of God, 
there is something we have to do. We absolutely do have to work to hold on to sometimes the peace of God. Not in a legalistic way, not in a way of earning our salvation over and over, but in a way where we partner with God to say, you know what? I can see where I'm trying to lose my peace and I choose not to. Okay, the grief is coming at me right now. The suffering's coming at me right now, but I'm going to partner with you to hold on to the peace that you bought for me. You guys following me there? The lie that the enemy wants to say is, that's a work salvation. That's a work salvation. You know, you're off into some kind of legalism. And I'm here to tell you something. The scripture talks a lot about doing things, about working. Scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is actually an imperative command that you're supposed to do something. We don't just sit passively and say, well, world, I, you know what? I just sit here, throw, throw at me what you got, and think that it's going to be okay. We've got practice. We've got agreements. We've got all kind of things that are our responsibility that we have to do if we're going to maintain the peace of God. I need someone to say amen, but thank you, Chris, for doing that. <laughs> Here's the absolutely remarkable thing is when we say yes to God, when we experience peace with God, we receive the Holy Spirit who will teach us all things. It says in John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So, you guys, so the cool thing is this. All we have to do is say, oh, yes, I agree. And the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us and enables us, enables us to say yes over and over and over. Jesus didn't leave us as orphans. He didn't say, good luck. I've opened the door for you. Good luck. I've opened the door. You get to walk into Narnia. Good luck. I hope you make it. No. Jesus said, oh, I'm giving you a friend. He's going to walk arm in arm with you, and we don't understand where to go. He's going to tell you where to walk. He's going to tell you what a door to go through. He's going to tell you how to do it. The only hitch is this. You have to talk to him. That's the only hitch. There's only one hitch. You have to ask him. You have to actually acknowledge he's next to you. He's arm in arm with you. You either acknowledge he's next to you and say, hey, what's, man, I don't know what job I should take. Like, I don't know. Like, what's, what's the next thing I should be doing? Have a conversation with him. He'll tell you what to do. Or if he doesn't, he'll say, well, let's just keep walking. Let's just keep walking. Let's keep opening these doors. And as these doors get open or shut, I'm going to tell you things about that. I'm telling you right now, we are not left as orphans. We absolutely have someone who will show us the way. We only have to do one thing. Talk to him. That's the only thing. And listen. Talk and listen. Thank you, Tim. Tim. It looks like this. Grace is the hand of God that provides the peace with God. Faith is our hand that receives the peace of God. I was listening to Chris's um, sermon the other day. Didn't he do such a really, really good job? Amen, amen, amen. And he was talking about his encounter and how... Um, he felt like he was in a prison, and he could hear the prison door and the, the water and all that, and he was in a prison. And here came Jesus, opened the door, and said, come with me. Well, he had a choice there. 
He said, no, my prison's so comfortable, I'll just stay right here. No thanks, I'll just stay in the prison. Or he could say, yeah, you know, I think I'll go with him, and followed him out of the prison. And he was out of the prison because he made an agreement with the Lord and not an agreement with what he saw his reality as. He chose to believe God. That is called faith. Faith unlocks the peace of Christ. Faith unlocks the peace of Christ. And if we're going to have the supernatural peace and wholeness and completeness and fulfillment, we have to walk in faith all the time. And sometimes, like we saw in Hebrews, the, you know Hebrews has the... Um, it's called the Hall of Faith with all the different people. It has Abel and Noah and Abraham. All these people walked by faith and did not see the promise. The promise is yet to come for them. They're going to see it at the end times. But they walked by faith, believing a promise. And it was, what does the scripture say? Credited to them as righteousness because of their faith. They achieved something because of their faith that they couldn't really see in the natural. And that's what God is asking us to do. He's saying, I want you to practice faith even when you don't see it in the natural because my promise to you is peace and righteousness when you will believe me and have faith. And I want to talk to you about four, five false peace bringers, things that in our worldliness we look to for peace that are false, all right? Um, the other day, the first one's called fame. Fame is the desire to be known, admired, liked, followed, respected, and famous. Yesterday, me, Chris, were watching, I know you've all seen this movie, Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty with, with, John, with uh, Jim Carrey. I don't know if you remember the story. He's a, um, a newscaster. And he gets kind of um, passed over for being a news anchor. And so he's really, really mad. And he, he says, smite me, God, which I'm like, I would never say that. But, you know, he said that. And he got um, God's powers for, I think, seven days, something like that, and messed everything up, you know, the the, pulled the moon down and messed up the tides. Everyone won the lottery. The lottery went bankrupt, you know, just all those crazy things. He couldn't mess with free will, so he couldn't make his girlfriend love him. He lost her. It was, he had a miserable time. But what he longed for the most was to be famous as a famous newscaster. And what he came to realize at the end was none of that mattered. He wanted the love of his girlfriend, and he, he needed to be taught humility, and he needed to be taught what was really important. But he thought that fame would be the answer, that fame would bring him wholeness, and completeness, and success, and fulfillment, and it did not. It absolutely did not. Studies show that the number one goal of 10 to 12-year-olds is to be famous. Ages 22 through 37, 50% of them believe that their life should be made into a movie. One in 12 people would disown their family to be a household name. One in nine would give up marriage. And one in six would give up kids to be a household name. Janet doesn't believe it. <laughs> Jim Carrey said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. From Jim Carrey. We all know of, of people. Michael Jackson. 
We know of Robin Williams. Committed suicide? He was a famous actor, committed suicide. Heath Ledger, overdose, committed suicide, I don't know. Apparently fame does not work. Apparently fame is not the answer because we see so many people committing suicide and going bankrupt and all kinds of crazy things. It doesn't seem to work, okay? Let's cross fame off as our, as our uh, way to peace. The second one is money and possessions. Fifth, okay, are you ready for more statistics? You'll love this. 54% of people would listen to country music for the rest of their lives for $5 million. 42%, ready? 42% would have all their teeth removed. All their teeth removed for $5 million. 50% said they would let one random person in the world die for $5, for $5 million, round of money, for $5 million. 24% they would live in solitude. I don't get this one. 24% they would live in solitude for the rest of their lives for $5 million. <laughs> you get that one, Tim? <laughs> Pardon me? Country music is the easiest. Maybe I could do that, maybe. What did Jesus say? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. There was the story in the Bible where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do? I've kept all the commandments. I've done everything the law has demanded. And what did Jesus say? Sell all your possessions and follow me. And he wasn't able to do it because he had such a love of money. I just want you to know something supernatural peace doesn't exist outside of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus said, sell all your treasures and follow me, he was inviting him into the kingdom of God but he couldn't enter in because his, his love of his possessions and his treasures prevented him from entering the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where supernatural peace is found. No place else, the kingdom of God. If possessions are keeping you from the kingdom of God, you gotta get rid of them. If the love of money is keeping you from the kingdom of God, we gotta root it out of our life because it's absolutely preventing us from peace. You know, it's funny, um, they did another study. I know you love these little statistics. But they were talking about how, when do people become rich? Like, what's the threshold for rich, you know? And it depended on how much money people made. So if they made 25000 50000 was, ri was rich. If they made 50000 75000 So the more you made, the more that number kept moving as to what was really rich, right? <laughs> I was talking to my friend Jody Randa. We were talking about, um, you know, when we do, when me and Chris are self-employed, and so our income is like this, and it depends on, you know, how many deals do we, how many deals do we have in the pipeline? What do we have coming up? Who are we, you know, who's down the road? And the thing, the crazy thing that happens is, you could have closed 50 deals, and you're you're closing one, but if you don't see the next one coming, you're like, where's the next one? Now I'm in poverty. Now I'm in fear again. And you could you could have you had made five hundred thousand that year, and you're like, but wait, I don't have the next one lined up. Where is it at? That does not lead to peace, because you're putting your trust in that kind of provision, not the Lord, but what you see in the natural. That's just I thought that was just kind of a funny. I mean, that happens all the time. You're like, where's my next deal? I don't know where my next deal is coming from. Where is it? Number three, perfectionism keeps us from peace. There's three types of perfectionism. I know you love these things, don't you guys? 
Their self-oriented perfectionism, we hold unrealistically high expectations, battle feelings of guilt, obsessiveness. We procrastinate and struggle with deep feelings of inadequacy. That's about ourselves. Self-oriented perfectionism. Externally oriented. You believe others expect you to be perfect. You're self-deprecating. You feel alone, depressed, and desperate because you know you'll never be enough. Or other-oriented. You expect others to live up to your impossible standards. You lack empathy. You tear down others or use demeaning humor toward those who don't meet your standards. Here's the reality. I got some really good news for you. We will never be good enough. There is nothing we can ever, ever do. We can't make enough money, be thin enough, exercise enough, be young enough, be smart enough, be creative enough, be loving enough. We will never do anything to be good enough. That's the good news. So all you perfectionists out there can take a deep breath and let it all go. Just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Here's what perfectionism done, does. Here's the good thing that perfectionism does. It shows us that we'll never be perfect. Perfectionism actually shows us we can never be perfect. And if we would look at it correctly, it will make us look to Jesus and say, Thank you, Jesus. I don't have to be perfect. You're perfect. I don't have to be perfect. You're perfect enough for me. If we use perfectionism the correct way, if we let it make us aware that we'll never be good enough, perfectionism covers our deepest fears of inadequacy, rejection, and intimacy. We always need to choose, you guys. We need to make this choice. This is part of walking in peace about ourselves, sometimes mostly about ourselves, and about others. We have to choose love over performance, always. Because I got news for you, Jesus always does. Because we will never perform good enough. Jesus always chooses love over performance. Look at Mary and Martha. He's like, Martha, take a break. We don't have to have a perfect dinner. Let's sit around like Mary's doing. Let's just sit around and talk. Can you imagine how that drove Martha crazy? Because she was like, wait a minute, everything's going to burn. What am I going to do? How do we get the food ready? There's nothing wrong with <laughs> There's nothing wrong with wanting to make sure the food comes out hot until you're driving people crazy about it, until you're choosing performance over relationship and performance over love. We always choose love because we are practicing to be like Jesus. And Jesus chooses love all the time. All the time. Because if we were, we'd be, met, we'd be in a heck, heck of a deal if he chose performance because we'll never live up to him. Another one is Approval. P problems, people pleasers battle. You obsess about what other people think. You're overly sensitive to criticism. You have a hard time saying no, and you're a conflict avoider at all costs. Being obsessed with what people think about you is the fastest way to forget about what God says about you. If all we're doing is thinking about what people think about us, we will never have room in our brain 
to remember what God says about us. It will steal our peace every time. We have to have a different goal. We can say to ourselves, I'm going to live for the approval of man. We're going to say, wait a minute. I'm going to live for God and God's. I'm going to make God famous. I'm going to make God famous, not myself. I'm going to make God famous. I'm going to live for him and his glory. Once we take our eyes off ourselves, our peace can come back to us. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Facts. People-pleasing is a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. The approval of God sets us free from the disease to please. You know, one of the hardest things for me is take criticism. I don't like to be criticized. It makes me feel little and a failure and wrong and somehow maybe unworthy. Those are none of the things that God says over me. Every single one of us makes mistakes. Every single one of us sins. Once we understand how much God loves us, we don't have to be so sensitive to criticism. We can forgive ourselves better and faster. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves, right? Right? Because for whatever reason, we don't really have incorporated what God says about us. We have to focus on God because he will cure us of that disease, of being a people pleaser. Here's the last one. I really resonate with this one. Comfort. The desire to have a life defined more by ease than by struggle. That is something that will take away our peace. And it reveals a spiritual emptiness. Do not love the world, this is 1 John, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Remember how I was talking about the Hall of Faith in Hebrews? It was Abel, Enoch, that's the one I forgot. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, all put their faith in God without really seeing the final result of it. Can you imagine Abraham and Sarah, 100 years old, 90 years old, believing they're going to have a child of promise, a child that's going to be the father of many nations? What kind of faith is that, you guys? What kind of faith is that? And then they called, you know, Abraham was called out of his country to go to the faraway country and do all these things. He did something, you know, how about this? Your son is finally born. And God says, oh, and now I want you to sacrifice him. Could you take him up to that mountain over there? And I want you to sacrifice him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham's like, okay. Now, who of you could do that? That faith. Now, that's out of my comfort zone, sacrificing my child. It's out of my comfort zone. Can I tell you that right now? But that faith led to a greater promise for him and for us. You understand that when we see him in heaven, we are fruit of his faith. We are fruit of his obedience. That righteousness was credited to him. His faith was credited as righteousness because of his faith. If we're going to experience peace, the real peace of God, the fulfillment of what God has for our life, we can't stay in our comfort zone. He may call us to, ooh, Iraq, a different job, 
um, all kinds of things. What did you say? Hawaii? <laughs> My point is, without faith, this is Hebrews eleven six. it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he, here's the thing, rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, the promise of reward in Hebrews 11 is attached to faith, not to comfort. The scripture doesn't say, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of security and comfort, and then you'll have a reward. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, if you have faith in me and what I ask you to do, there will be a reward in that. The reward is attached to faith, not to comfort. Comfort steals our faith. Biblical comfort involves sharing in the suffering of Christ, in suffering. I'm going to wrap it up right there, and I'm going to, I know that you enjoyed hearing how we shouldn't um, pursue peace, and the next time I speak, I'm going to finish it with how we can obtain biblical peace. How do we pursue biblical peace? How do we partner with the Lord for biblical peace? Okay, that'll be my part two, because that will be another sermon. I know you're so anxious to hear it. It'll probably be in January, or Chris, you could preach it, either one. Um, but I want to wrap it up right now and just encourage you guys to be aware of and to partner with the Lord and ask him where maybe you're giving away your peace. Maybe you're letting go of peace. Maybe you're pursuing peace in a way that's not from the Lord, that's a worldly way. I would love for you to say, you know, this, I'm so happy I'm not preaching in December. Thank you for preaching, babe. Because one of the things that December tries to do to me is steal my peace, right? There's a lot of parties. I got to cook a lot. I got to buy presents. I got to decorate the house. Um, there's a lot for me to do. In the last couple of years, December has taken me down. Like, it's taken me straight down. Last year, we went out for dinner at Christmas because I'm like, I'm not cooking. Like, I'm out. I'm tapped out. We went to the fun story, Bob and Janet and my mom and my family, the only place that was open was Macaroni Grill on Arapahoe. And um, they have this app called Open Table where you can make reservations, you know. So I'm <laughs> it's really one of my best memories. I mean, you know how shared crisis bonds you together, right? And so we drive up there. This is great. We drive up there, and, you know, there's like 20 people waiting outside, and we're just like, well, we have reservations, so we should have no problem getting in. So we go in there and talk to the, to the host who was like this. What do you want? We're like, yeah, we have a reservation at one. Yeah, it'll be an hour. And we're like, no, 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 we have a reservation. They're like, uh, yeah, look at the restaurant. And it was trashed. Every single, every single um, table had stuff on it. It hadn't been bust. It was trashed. People, the waitresses are walking around just like their chickens with their head cut off, you know. My son is like, Christian, he's like, no, you don't understand what the word reserve means. And it starts to go into this definition of the word reserve. And the guy's like, doesn't matter what the word reserve means. I don't have a table to give you. Like, there's no table for you to sit at, you know? Well, then my son David, who actually works in a restaurant, he's like, that's not the way you handle a host. So he went up to the host and tried to, like, schmooze with him. So all the rest of us, we just went over to the three-person bar and were like, give us a glass of wine. I guess we'll wait here for an hour. Because there's no other place we were going except Denny's, and we didn't want to go there, you know? So eventually, an hour later, we got to our table, Oh, we had bread. We ate tons and tons of bread. It was probably a three-hour meal, probably, because the waitress was so 
backed up. She couldn't get to us in time. You know how they're supposed to clear your your um, plates? Like once your salad is gone, they clear your salad plate and bring your entree, that kind of thing. She didn't have time, so we just piled it into the middle of our table. We had a round table, and we made a tower of all of our um, dirty dishes in between us. And I was so happy, you guys, because I wasn't cooking the meal, and I was with the people I loved. It was really still decent food. The food was fine, but it was just the most hilarious Christmas we've ever had. But I've decided this December, that's not, December's not taking me down. I told you guys I'm getting my mojo back, and that means I'm not giving my peace away. I'm not giving my peace away to circumstances or stress. If we have to eat at Denny's, we'll eat at Denny's. I don't care. We won't eat at Denny's. Macaroni grill filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, macaroni grill filed for bankruptcy. So they're off, the, they're off my options this year. They filed. No, I'm not doing Papa Murphy's. But my point to you is I really want you guys to be purposeful about keeping your peace this Christmas. Um, go out to eat if you have to. Don't go out to eat. Don't exchange presents. You don't have to do what the world says. You get to do what the Holy Spirit is saying next to you. Talk to the Holy Spirit. Partner with the Holy Spirit. Say, hey, how do I keep my peace this season? How am I losing my peace? How am I giving my peace away? Help me. Because you want to walk through into your Narnia, and you want to just enjoy that adventure that God has in front of you and not stress about it. So anyway, I'm going to wrap it up. Anyone wants prayer for peace? Me and Steve will be up front. Can we have a little music? And the rest of us are going to be excused to dinner. Thank you to Debbie Blanchard for our meal.